This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Ian Sinclair returns to the show to talk about a day's walk around the ginger line in London Overground and also about the monograph Black Apples of Gower. Ian Sinclair is a poet, filmmaker, essayist and the author of many acclaimed books including Down River, which won the James Tate Black Memorial Prize, Lights Out for the Territory, London Orbital, Edge of the Horizon, Hackney, That Rose Red Empire, which we talked about in the previous Little Atoms, Dining on Stones, Ghost Milk, American Smoke. He's the editor of the anthology London City of Disappearances, and he's also written and presented a number of films for BBC Two's Late Show, collaborated with Andrew Cotting on Swan Down and By Ourselves, and co-directed several documentaries with Chris Pettit, including London Orbital and The Falconer. He was born in South Wales, went to school in England and university in Ireland, and he now lives in Hackney. In this interview, we're going to talk about two new books, London Overground and Black Apples of Gower. So, Ian, it's a pleasure to talk to you, first Thank of all. Thank you very much. Nice to um, see you again. It's serious how old I am, because five years has been the blink of an eye. It felt like yesterday. Um, so, yeah, so it was five years ago that we talked about Hackney, that rose-red empire. And it's still here. It is. <laughs> More Just or less. about, although even more changed than it was five years ago. Yeah, it's a totally new place now. It is a kind of model paradigm of the, the city of the future. I mean, <laughs> it, you know, it's, a, it's as much virtual as actual. It's a, it's a mysterious event to move across the streets of Hackney. There's a whole new demographic, and uh, even the very geography seems to have changed. You know, places like Broadway Market have imported a slice of Notting Hill or Borough Market in the terms of the food market. You know, it's it, instead of uh, Hackney being a place where people move to escape from Whitechapel or a sort of staging post out of their various ghettos, it's now somewhere to aspire to. It's, mm-hmm. it's incredibly expensive. You know, yeah, and it did. I, I could not ever imagine living here. No, no, no. I mean, you know, we, we moved to the, where we're sitting was a, a small terraced house was actually condemned in, the, in mm-hmm. the late 1960s. They wanted to get rid of all these things and, and nobody could be persuaded to move in to them they were phenomenally cheap now we have high court judges you know we have will young we have millionaires all around us and the people are frightened to stay they they need they kind of feel they must move out because their houses are worth millions the thing that was looming on the horizon when we last spoke was the olympics and we talked a lot about the development that was going on around the olympics and you know sort of one of the most perceptive observers about the change in you know not just the you know the development but obviously the sort of demographic of the people that were living around and being displaced by that so what happened that's what i want to talk about really first of all so the so the olympics came and went yeah. And there was this, you know, the, the legacy, which I'm doing in inverted commas, which people call it. Well, they, they worked through the legacy before it happened. The legacy was a big debate before it happened. Then there was this flash frame, which was all mm-hmm. bells and whistles, an incredible blitz of light that lasted a few moments with compulsory wall-to-wall TV and national celebration, money pumped in, medals. And then what happens afterwards is, mm-hmm. is pretty weird. It's a, it's a strange landscape now. Nobody quite knows what it is. You've created this park but it's more like some a retail park than a pleasure park it looks like it belongs on the edge of a city with a highway going through it heading to the big westfield center which is really the the germinator of the whole process i mean mm-hmm. everything really belonged to a huge shopping mall with some attached fun and games for a few weeks and then the whole business of take, giving the stadium over to west ham football club is a pretty strange and weird weird affair well, even that as a as a transport hub now, I used only a couple of weeks ago used a Stratford International. I come through Stratford all the time, but used the Stratford International Station for the first time. And the approach to that was, you know, yeah, you had to, to get walk from the shopping you centre. have to come through the shopping centre. So the first time I'd ever been into West. It's called it's pedestrian permeability, which mm-hmm. means that there's only certain ways you can walk, and those walk, those ways take you past all the outlets in Westfield. I mean, that that is the kind of the model, and then the the, the buildings that grow up are 
essentially parasitical on this and they the owners are often offshore or, or investors of some sort they come in and and uh, you're disposing of the the people whose natural habitat it was and i've noticed that some of the very first flats that went up around the time we were chatting where they were putting up the first flats that would would uh, operate in this landscape are now already being taken down for bigger ones they would mm. they, they didn't really work and the people in there are f- finding that the lifts don't work there are people getting ill very high percentage of people getting ill from the dust that was coming off the site nobody ever addressed the fact that it was carcinogenic and there was so much radioactive material buried and the river was dead all, all of those kind of things were totally brushed aside we can't see really yet exactly what will become of it when you have such an imperative towards making it work as with docklands it does it does achieve something like a success inverting commas because people come there money comes there especially mm-hmm. you know you end up basically with banks big bank towers and um, the same thing is happening with the olympic area in stratford in that they're now parachuting in a whole series of people who have no choice to be there the number of towers around there, the developments, towers of housing, is is, is incredible. They just seem to sprout up every day. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a again, it's a, a computer generated city that's that's actually slipped off the screen onto onto the landscape of London for a time. But when the more you talk to people who actually live there or live nearby, they're generally fairly uneasy unless they've bought into this and just come along now. So there's a place here. I've just walked down Kingsland High Road and over it like. Actually, you know, a, a relatively attractive development over the top of Dalston Junction, but it just looks like, you know, completely out of place, totally in the wrong yeah, place. Yeah, well, it's, it's a generic development. I mean, it could be literally anywhere. Mm. I mean, what what happens is that you've abolished the whole, I- the whole idea of um, suburb, inner city, outer city is, is gone in that these kind of suburban developments are now happening in the city and um, gradual leeching away of the local. Because the thing that made London great, as far as I was concerned, was that all these small localities were all very different. They all had very different qualities and they were like a series of small villages, settlements, industrial operations that happened to bump into each mm-hmm. other and argue with each other and, and give you the flavour of what a city was. But now there's a more and more an impulse to make them all the same. If you're standing in, in Dalston Junction, you, you literally could be anywhere. Although there, it does still have, that's why, one of the reasons why it seems like so incongruous. bits of the old, of course. Yeah. There's, there's a, a peace mural and there's traces of the old street. But the, the, fe- the great uh, Victorian theatre that was there was demolished to create that thing that you're looking at. Um, and it was done to create the trans transport hub I and mean, that whenever you see the word hub you have to be very very yeah. wary <laughs> and, um, there's a lot of pressure on on the great tra- uh, treasure of the area which is Ridley Road market big mm. street market very democratic market it, it's it's uncontrollable so that they, they want they want to kind of bring that down to a controllable level and, and replace it with a, with a big supermarket and they've already shot Kingsland waste market which w- if you walk down Kingsland Road to here mm-hmm. on a Saturday that would have been a big market when I first lived here and that's now now, to all intents and purposes, disappeared because the council don't like it. It's untidy. It mm-hmm. makes rubbish. Um, and you never know what's being sold there. And they, they don't like that. Whereas Broadway Market is this sort of very controllable space with expensive food and little bistros and bars and hairdressers. And there there it goes. It's it's a, it's a different, different London. Who's coming in then? Who's buying those flats? I mean, what are the, you know, what's the new say, I mean, young, uh, young, basically young people, um, often with uh, both couples working, uh, high income in, in IT and, and uh, fashion and music and all that, that kind of general area, or else people who, who've got wealthy parents who mm-hmm. set them up there because the costs are phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, that seems more like it. I mean, young people. You, it's, it's, you know, the descriptor there of, of young people. They're not they, the they same young afford. people. There were young people when uh, <laughs> when we moved in. There were young people, but they didn't base, mostly didn't have any money, and they were they were forming um, communal houses with large groups of people who lived in houses and carried out various projects, political or artistic or whatever. And it, they were here because it was a totally rundown area mm-hmm. in, the, in the way that's always happened. And then artists come in, and then the you know the state agents see what's happening because the area is getting different. Mm-hmm 
different and so on and so on. This, you know, I've actually heard people talking who don't really know where they are. They just, they just know that this is a, the happening thing. Mm -hmm. And it's an extension of what started down in Brick Lane. Brick Lane, Hoxton, Old Street creates Silicon Roundabout mm -hmm. and, and the, the, the kind of nightlife scene. Uh, and now, I mean, it's spilled, spilled up Kingston Road and for various reasons that we'll probably come into later. I think that's changed everything in, in that the kind of buildings that are being built um, have transport connections that make it possible for you to come and be here in a way that you couldn't in the old Hackney because there was, there was no underground connection, mm -hmm. you know, and, and uh, it sort of remained off the map. It remained interestingly peculiar, and that's under threat. So you're going to end up with a whole bunches of glistening new buildings, parasitical either on the canal or on the railway system. I think, I mean, superficially, you could come here, walk around and suggest that things were similar to that, you know, the brick lane of the, the 80s and early 90s, you suggest, you know, artists coming in, taking over places, doing interesting things. You know, then you look a bit closer and it's cafes selling breakfast cereals and cat yeah, cafes and things rather than actual artists. It's still, a, it's still a, an interesting mix because you, you've always had so many different cultures coming here so you don't have to pick away very hard at it till you see the, the stretches that are afro-caribbean the stretches that are turkish kurdish vietnamese they're they're all here they're all still thriving and flourishing but it's got this hipstery overlay that that's that likes that general atmosphere mm -hmm. it probably doesn't use that part of it very much and they you know there, there are people i would imagine who barely eat anything in these in their own flats or living spaces at all they're perpetually in this thing of going to work on on the state-of-the-art bicycles and they come through and have a designer coffee from an artisan baker and that's your that's your hit for the day mm -hmm. and you're already plugged into the electronic world you're you actually you can hear this yapping going on as they come down the road because they're already in the office before they've got there or else taking care of business for the day so it's like a flock of birds jabbering and screeching as they come down the street and then it clears and it's quiet for a bit bread from an artisan baker that no one that would ever have uh, generally called themselves an artisan could no, artisan baker <laughs> means that you're basically a downsizing city banker who's you know taking your redundancy money and you you fancy dabbling in being playing at a baker or butcher for a bit in the, in the outfit and and um, people like that feel they like to think they're buying some kind of peasant food but even though it's costing them seven times as much as what they could get from the old established bakers that are still around and i mean you you touch on this in the book on london overground that we, we're going to get on to in a moment but the, the, these sort of new developments we're talking about these like the buildings of towers they either come in and they superficially attempt they give themselves a nice sort of twee name and they attempt to, to try and take on a little bit of the of the flavor of the locality well they, they generally have a flavor of locality that the locality never had they call themselves city mills it's not in the city and it was never a mill well, they'll, they'll give you something like that, try and reference something that was not there. So you, you're, you're imposing a bogus narrative on history and you're trying to sanitise a lot of the darkness of the industrial age that's gone before and wipe it out and not deal in that. I'm Emma-Jane Unsworth, you're listening to Resonance FM and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's move on to London Overground then and... You've already touched on this. I mean, the, the train line that we're going to talk about in this book is one of the things that's opened up this area and, and plenty others. Sure, yeah, totally. I mean, well, the whole the whole process with writing London Overground was was essentially I'd written so much about all of that Olympic argument and, and privatization of public space, loss of public space, the uh, enclosures, the, the the driving away of communities, travellers, the ending of allotments, all of that stuff. So, so I, I really felt beaten down by that whole uh, argument and I didn't really want to walk into the areas I'd been walking into for so long as a memory ground. I had to strike off in a totally different direction just, just to see what had happened. So in walking down towards the river, basically to Shoreditch and down that way, I kind of noticed that the dominant thing was the, the sound of this new, quotes, railway that was sighing and moaning orgasmically alongside me. And then I remembered it wasn't actually a new railway at all. Mm -hmm. It was it was always there. We used to be able to get a train from Dalston Junction where we've talked about this block of flats, down to the city um, for city clerks to go to work. 
and it was it was closed down in the Thatcher era. It lasted till then. They said, there's no demand for a train anymore. And she said, uh, people who use public transport are losers if they're over 20. All that sort of madness. So this goes. But really, so you could create Broadgate development in the city, which is mm-hmm. all phony ice rinks and New York pastiche and artworks and so on. Now, of course, in the Olympic moment, they, the idea is to bring it back because you've got to have connections to Stratford and so on. So they pick up on the old railway which had become a kind of uh, derelict wilderness zone a real green bridge with trees growing up people hiding out on it all sorts of stuff and it was reconnected and became part of this necklace of railway one part of which was completely circular so Mm. in a sense you could in the way that i'd walked around the m25 before i realized now you could you could walk i could walk down to the river go uh, pick it up on rotherhithe go right through peckham and denmark hill and clapham and all these places i didn't know very well come back over the river again and up through chelsea harbour shepherd's bush wilsdon back into finchley uh, hampstead over the hill back literally come around the entire circuit of the city in a day mm-hmm. and so places you didn't think of connected with places that had never been connected before and it had a, a rich cultural backstory in it and I thought well if I, if I walked around the M25 as describing a particular period essentially of abolishing the strength of the inner city closing down the GLC opening up the financial markets opening up this road connecting up to retail parks abolishing the hospitals and asylums that were around the edge mm-hmm. and turning them into private gated communities and now very much the same thing would happen right in the inner city and that was that was really interesting and then I, re- I thought that the railway itself created a microclimate that the railway really was a kind of London and that, that if you were not on the railway you were not part of the story and so they built flats that balconies were inches from literally inches from the line all of these had bicycles on and below all of those strange railway arches were filling up with uh, coffee bars, uh, dance studios, Japanese restaurants, whatever. So here we are, here's London, completely altered by the fact of this old thing being promoted and established. And so I thought, well, let's do it. And the interesting way to do it to me was where I'd walked around the M25 in 12 different walks, one day a month for a year. Let's try and do this in a single day. And I persuaded Andrew Cotting, who had made the Swan Down film, to come with me and we, we started off in Haggerston and we walked right around the whole of this London circuit in a single day. So it's a very simple story but a good way of, of reading the temperature of what's going on at the moment. The way he describes the M25 in London Orbital, as you said, sort of that, that sort of like, you know, big Thatcherite project, sort of almost, you know, encircling a noose around London, the closing down of the outside. I mean, actually, I think this, not necessarily what you talk about in the book, but the, the project itself is a lot more optimistic. There's a lot more, you know, the idea of freedom by the opening and the encircling yeah, of London well, by this train line. Well, there's, there's a, lot, a lot of, initially, it felt good because... It was efficient service. It works. It works. The the trains come every few minutes. They're bigger and there's more light and air than in the tube system. And secondly, there are these random connections. Like I can now go to Mm -hmm. New Cross. I've got to go to Goldsmiths. It's not a huge hassle. Or I'm very happy to go to see an old lady who I interviewed for the last book who lived in Denmark Hill. So, so this is, I mean, really, it opened up a kind of a easygoing version of London, in a sense, because you just get on this thing and it, it goes there. But there are other sides to it, too, that, you know, I, I saw that property values leapt in some bits and then tumbled in others. And that uh, when you got to Clapham, I met this woman who was very incensed because there had been an old train that went directly to Victoria Station where she wanted to go in five minutes. Now um, she was committed to do some long digressive loop on this thing which had replaced it because that was the sexy development of the moment and they got rid of all the old stuff.
This is Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, today I'm talking to Ian Sinclair. We're talking at the moment about his book London Overground, A Day's Walk Around the Ginger Line. We'll soon be talking about his book Black Apples of Gower. But Ian, you, in the first part you described actually the history of, there was a history to the, the stretch of reopened Overground Railway. But you also have, you have a history with other parts of the railway as well. And, and I do as well. I mean, I, I mean I've mean, i lived out of London for eight years, but I lived in London 15 years previously to that. And when I first came here, I lived over in Kensal Green, worked over near Gunnersbury. And so every day would use that line. But also like the other way, because that other way opened up to me, Hampstead Heath and Camden Town and Islington. Now, subsequently moving out, I moved out to Essex. I come into the city that way and use that line again a lot to go to Hackney, to go to Stoke Newington. And, you know, the opening up, as you've said, the opening up to the south. I have friends in Crystal Palace, who I recently went to visit on, on that line as well. It's it's almost like, I almost feel like there's so much, there's no need to go into the West End. You know, there's so much of London that opens up on that line. That's probably one of the effects it's going to have. Mm-hmm. Combined with what happened in setting up Westfield, which has become a great magnet for people who you wouldn't think would do it, but they say, oh, it's easy to park. Mm-hmm. So uh, the West End must be losing out to this, and equally the Westfield on the other side in Shepherd's Bush, mm-hmm. because this this railway walk takes you right up to the Shepherd's Bush one as well. And you see that those are the destinations now, not any particular place or cultural setting or anything else. And essentially there's, there's a threat that the, the centre's going to change dramatically. Mm-hmm. We already see that Chelsea and Kensington are literally emptying out, that the, the, there are just these striking-looking properties that belong to people who don't live there. They're just, they're just doing it as an investment. And it's going to be one of the biggest changes that London has had for a very long time, because initially what happens is, you know, the founding city is just is down behind us on, on the river there. There is this walled city that is the, the founding place, and then um, Westminster becomes the seat of government, and there's a really dubious walk between the two, as Samuel Pepys writes about this muddy, dangerous stretch, or you go by river. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And then gradually the various suburbs come into play, and you've built up this necklace around London. Well, now we're actually literally challenging that in interesting <laughs> ways. We're saying that the middle is going to be hopeless. We're just going to dig an enormous cross-rail tunnel and um, you're going to be coming out to these bits on the edge. And that, So the edge is not edge anymore and the middle is not middle. And the geometry of it all is becoming really interestingly peculiar. So tell us some of your history with that, with what was the North London line. Well, well, I mean, initially, I, I, when I came to London from Wales, I was living down in South London. And I was going to uh, film school in Electric Avenue in Brixton, which we walked past on this. Though there's no rail stop in Brixton, I think. So they decided Brixton is too dangerous or something. They don't stop there. Uh, and then my whole early learning version of London was I understood the Northern Line, you know, or I just used to go up, up and down that because it went to. Charing Cross Road, where mm-hmm. bookshops were, and I'd meet people in Soho, whatever. You go up to uh, Hampstead to the Everyman Cinema. Mm-hmm. Or I literally kind of stuck to the Northern Line the because angel. I knew I didn't branch out. And I remember the first time I branched out to come up to Dalston, I needed to come up to the Rio Cinema up here. It was a real adventure, you know, coming to Liverpool Street and then getting a bus because basically you had to get a bus from there there was no no way of continuing the railway journey and I think that's how people learn learn their London they have some interest specific interest or what or connections family or friends that take them to places and then they they learn one small part of what's the convenient transport network and that becomes their vision until maybe they start walking or cycling across the entire map and, and it, it, London changes for them. Mm-hmm. No, and that was very much what it was like for me in that I have, I lived in London for 15 years but I have almost no conception of, of the bus routes, I never really used the bus, I have, you know, learned I know how to get everywhere on the tube but also that North London Rail Network as well is like very deeply imprinted but yeah, you well, just, I just never to the book yeah. In the, the old days was this really eccentric rail network that ran from Woolwich Mm. North Woolwich around to Kew yeah. really disconnected places mm-hmm. but it was a fantastic kind of magical journey yeah. the, the train itself was pretty clapped out by the end it was horribly crowded on certain stretches all the 
school kids were using it to fight your way on it but it you know it really was just an adventure mm-hmm. to come from here i used to go to camden town an awful lot on that because of compendium bookshop it's mm-hmm. an independent bookshop which was a big center or else you know round to kew gardens and richmond just for a day out in somewhere different see a different part of the river it's funny you mentioned now and i think it's um particularly either Hackney Central or it might have been Dalton you get out and there is like flats like literally right overlooking the platform when I lived up in in Kensal Green Kensal I lived overlooking Kensal Rise station on that line um, which was very convenient to go to work in the morning but at night the trains would stop and that route would be given over to goods trains and I would like lie in bed which overlooked the railway line and these 10 minute long trains would go mm, by yeah, and the bed would vibrate like so I was in some cheap trains motel. used to go through as well yeah yeah that, the, apparently waste. so yeah. <laughs> so yeah all kinds of stuff went along but one of the people I write about in the book is is the painter Leon Kossoff who mm-hmm. I think had a new sort of exemplary railway visionary career yeah because he, he grew up down in Whitechapel and um, then got a studio in Dawson but it was right on the railway line right at the junction so he could he could look into Ridley Road Market one way and he looked at the German hospital the other way mm-hmm. did these huge paintings in the 70s of the, of the changing landscape as people began to build around there and then he moves to Willesden and he's doing huge oceanic pictures of all the railway lines at Willesden Junction, he's got a studio there, and he's now moved across to Wilson Green, is doing kind of very interesting paintings that are just the end of his garden with the cherry tree drooping over and the trains flashing past, and mm-hmm. the realization that people on the trains are looking in at him. And that's like a whole, whole London life described mm-hmm. by Weens of the Railway. I want to talk about the walk then. So you've already mentioned you had a companion mm. filmmaker, Andrew Cotting. So, um, well, yeah. I'll let you describe him. Well, Andrew's quite an eccentric, extremely energetic character. He, he began as a physical performer, sort of comedian. Mm-hmm. He's a big, big, strong guy. And from that point, he was also a market trader and he, li- he lived in Deptford. And so it was very useful to me in terms of this book that he was able to describe that part of London mm-hmm. you know, from personal memory. And um, one of the people he met in that era, Philip Jenkinson, who was a film reviewer on, on television and had a private collection of films. And he used to show these films to Andrew and his family and various other people in his house. When Andrew would come there as a painter and decorator and got to know him, he then encouraged Andrew to make short films. So they, they were like films in the tradition of the sort of goon-type films and Dick Lester. These were absurdist films, very physical, lots mm-hmm. of running about in industrial deadlands. And from there it evolved to the point he did his most famous film, I guess, would be Gallivant as a film where he takes a camper van round the whole of the coast of Britain with his old granny and his young daughter who suffers from Joubert's syndrome. And it's a, it was amazingly affectionate portrait of mm-hmm. these two and also a kind of mad travelogue of the whole of Britain. So I kind of I knew him and his energies and we used to both spend time in Hastings. So he lives in St Leonard's mm-hmm. now and I see him down there a lot and started to do various projects together, particularly one of taking a swan peddler from Hastings all the way back to Hackney at the pre-Olympic moment. Mm-hmm. We took it all by water. And so after that I said to him, you know, I'm going to do this walk around... Uh, London a single day do you want to come along luckily he, he did because it was a way of discussing a film we wanted to do about the poet John Clare escaping from Epping Forest to go back to his home village so essentially we were kind of talking about that and accessing the stories of his territory that he remembered and me telling him stuff basically through the east end mm-hmm. as we got down to the river and then we passed into bits that no, none, neither of us knew particularly well, so that was interesting and mysterious. Then we come back into bits that one or other of us know again. And, it, and the nice thing is it goes right through the day into the night with stops for meals and eccentric cafes and mm-hmm. lots of banter and chat. And he's doing it almost like a performance. He's got a funny suit. Yeah, he turns up in a, in a rather interesting yeah, outfit. Yeah, strange suit. His wife, his, his wife, Layla, makes his clothes for him for these films and performances. She made a kind of slightly Joseph Boyce-like feltish suit, very heavy, very thick, 
would have stood up to anything. A bit hot for it, I mean, even though it was done in, I can't remember, it was in February, I think it was in, in a winter walk anyway. It got really, really hot, and he's uh, he's carrying kind of strange things like a stuffed monkey, and picks up, constantly picking up books along the way and getting me to write in them and then placing mm-hmm. them somewhere else, particularly in Kensal Green, where there was this library protest, and there's mm-hmm. a library on the pavement, and he stuff this book into this collection of books so it was left up there somewhere those sort of things so in a way he was uh, the ideal companion because he's he's full of this sort of physical performance and also always in, engaging in conversations with people in amusing ways and that left me free to This Mother's Day celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Observe. And also, he's um, you can write what you like, because as you mentioned numerous times, he's not likely to read it. <laughs> you did read it quite carefully. Yeah, uh, yeah. as long as it's about him, he'll read it. <laughs> he skips the other bits that aren't about him. I'm David Stubbs. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. So, I mean, you often do, you often have a companion on a wall yes. like that. So does that, oh, you just described well, that, you know, you, he can I be doing that, the performance you should Sure, I mean, uh, but... the thing about this walk is it's not simply, it's not a guidebook. No, it? no, absolutely. It's yeah. not a, a sort of a, a pure documentary. Mm-hmm. It's like making a construction, almost like a novel. Yeah. So like Don Quixote or something, you... The form of having the the straight man and the the comic character is a, is a classic, and I think there's a thing about when you when two people are walking, the, the, it's not like we're talking now face to face, but you're side by side, and and your eyes are looking out, making a span of the horizon, and that encourages a sort of different kind of confessional talk and storytelling that um, seems to suit the form of a walk and and you need to have the person it makes it a different experience to a solitary walker Mm -hmm. I mean the solitary walker form has got a classic tradition as well writers like W.G. Sebald Mm -hmm. are essentially on their own Mm -hmm. walking in a melancholy meditation about landscape which this isn't this is to do with teasing out a kind of knockabout comedy and then serious moments and then allows me to digress into memories of somebody like Angela Carter or J.G. Ballard, you know, which are people Andrew Cottington know much about or had never met and I could tell him about them and I could also come back and investigate it, write about it later. And we'll, we'll get on to those in a moment. But I wanted, I wanted to ask, I mean, first of all, how... I mean, especially with something like this, where you've set yourself a nominal route, which obviously... Well, it's, there's a, fixed, be, it's a very fixed route. But, but what I mean is there's going to be, you know, logistical policy, there's, a, there's, you know, there's an issue about how you cross the river, yes, for instance, yes. and, and things. You obviously can't, you know, you can't walk on the railway line. You've got to no. sort of follow the railway line as, as well as you can. But you've also imposed this idea of doing it all in, in the day. Yeah, we do it all in the day, and we have to take a photograph at each station, mm-hmm. so, so, uh, which we miss one because we're talking too much at Peckham Road. We actually walk right past the station, mm-hmm. which was really annoying because we've done every station day and night. So then I felt I had to go back you know, almost the next day and mm-hmm. take these gone, take a selfie of that one <laughs> to sort of put that one in the, in the collection. But to what extent, I was going to ask the how how well planned is that? Not at all. I mean, it's planned, and the whole thing is planned in the sense that I, I'd already done it on yeah. my own. I did it as three different walks, and I looked at things in some detail as I went round, quietly in my own time, and I took a bunch of photographs. Yeah. So I knew, I knew the whole span of it. Mm-hmm. 
and then that set it up so that was a rehearsal for the the day with him I didn't have to slow down to look at things in the same way as I'd done when I walked on my own so it's not quite as sort of free form as it would appear in the book I tried to give it the impression sure. spontaneity in the book well, here we are going around but I've actually done it all already and indeed returned to places like Chelsea Harbour after we'd finished because I, 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 we didn't have time to look at it in enough detail as we walked well I think I mean you've already there answered the next question I was going to ask which is obviously you know this is not just a walk you, you're writing a book about it so how yeah, do no, you it have time to, to the, whole, the of... whole thing is essentially it is a book and I've found yeah. I've decided that this material would lend itself to a book I want to write the book and it's mm-hmm. a book yet another book about London it's about a particular moment in London and, and mm-hmm. you know as we already discussed that I think a changing a changing London and this is like a corridor that allows you to see a glimpse of this changing London which I think is going to be to do with literally almost a tunnel a microclimate around transport systems we're now working on crossrail and when crossrail was first planned uh, there were there were people buying up properties in places that were projected where this would go and you can see the effect that massive property rises are coming on the back of future transport networks and I think what will happen is is the black spots where there really aren't the transport networks anymore. Um, and I've noticed already in parts of North London, like Enfield, there's, there's a huge rise in, in crime. And they're trying to, I think, bring that into the, into the overground system mm-hmm. as time goes on. You've already mentioned a couple of times the literary references as you're going around this walk and places, places that people are associated with. So William Blake in Peckham Rye and um, Ballard in, in Chelsea Harbour, as you said, Angela Carter in Clapham Junction. So, yeah, I wanted you just to tell us a, a couple of bits about some of this. Yeah, the, well, the, the prime, I think the big, the major literary ones are really the, the people you mentioned. Mm. William, William Blake is always a presence in any London journey because his whole take on London is to convert it into a mythical system. He, mm-hmm. he, he it was a, a major walker. He's walking his own old age from the river... Uh, Fountain Court by the Strand. He, he walks up to Hampstead where he sees his family and walks back when he's well in his 60s, which was old then. And he remembers his childhood walks out to Peckham Rye and his first visions of angels. And he's married in St Mary's Church, which we pass by in this walk mm-hmm. just at the point where we cross the river. So he, he's with it all the sort of time like a kind of companion presence, but the fixed presences in this were really An- Angela Carter because uh, she was so supportive to when I was starting to write fiction. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I didn't know her for a very long period, but I just thought her take on London was great. It was, it was a take into this old London of musical stars and old ladies behaving badly and uh, memories of, of kind of all the smells and dirt and movement and old railway stations of London. All that was in her work, which I liked. And the fact that she was so resolutely South Londoner and felt uncomfortable uh, when she was in places like Whitechapel. Mm-hmm. And she wrote a very nice piece on my book, Down River, which starts with about saying how strange she found it and how alien and even frightened she felt when she stepped onto those streets because it was just not a London she knew. So I wanted to, to give some account of her, and I think her her trajectory was between that part and um, Notting Hill, where she was part of that kind of 60s, New Worlds, Michael Moorcock, Ballard, that mm. that moment. And Ballard, I mean... And Ballard himself, obviously, was is famously a, a person of the edge. Yeah. He lived out in Shepparton for, for many years. And his version of London centre is slightly fantastic this late book which uses a set very like Chelsea Harbour mm. is really kind of an imaginary construct based on some of his memories from when he did live in the centre in the 60s and then again from stuff he's read so it, it creates this quite curious sort of cartoony version of the city which is actually quite true to what it really is mm-hmm. because it is like a quite strange cartoony version of itself and it was an attempt to impose one of these upmarket communities on a place that didn't really suit it initially it was that these are old coal yards and power stations and all that stuff is suddenly thrown up into towers and it's but it's not part of its own territory so you create a, a very weird atmosphere and, and that's the atmosphere he taps into 
He, he's fascinated by the paranoia of the, of the, the established middle classes and the underlying ennui and boredom mm-hmm. that, that forces them to behave in peculiar ways and become almost urban terrorists. Ballard's a, I mean, a big influence on all of your work, I think, but I, th- I felt it particularly a few times in this book, how it starts with um, there's a dead pigeon at the beginning. There was a line... I mean, seriously, I, I, I almost put the book down and applaud it. There was a line that when you're at Millwall, where you describe a blue sky fit enough for a fatal Florida rocket launch or right, something. Yeah. Which it was, was like Cape Canaveral, yeah. yeah. It was exactly like that. It was like the day of something that you're going to watch with horror. The sky is too blue and it's going to blow itself to pieces. It had that atmosphere. Yeah, absolutely. That, that was a very Balladian image. I didn't think of it at the time, but you're right. But I mean, I wasn't. It's, uh, you know, I, I, my main point of uh, influence and contact with him was at the time of doing the London Orbital thing, mm. because obviously the whole corridor out there and that side was uh, seen through his prism. But before that, really, I suppose I don't think I was particularly influenced by him because the things I was interested in were not things he was interested in at all. That London Gothic. Mm-hmm. The old carbonized, dirty London with the patterners and and the levels beneath it. He's not interested really in in digging into mm-hmm. these multi-layered versions of London, like sort of Peter Ackroyd or something. He's interested in this pristine surface mm-hmm. and the way that the people who move into those pristine surfaces are affected by them. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. I'm talking to Ian Sinclair. We've been talking about his book London Overground and now we're going to talk about his book Black Apples of Gower, which is something of a departure. What? How did this come about? What's the idea about uh, this Yeah, the, the Black Apples of Gower book would seem to be a, a departure. Um, it was come from uh, Independence Press called Little Toller. Who's, I'd seen their, their books around. They were very nice books. Mm, my, very attractive my contact book. with them was was not so far away because they, they published a book by Richard Maybe about edgelands. It was mm-hmm. one, of, one of really I guess one of the definitive books on the, on the whole idea of edgelands published before the fashion, long before the fashion in the seventies. And they were going to reissue this book, which is about those bits on the edges of cities, liminal territories where industries are rotting away, but nature is already coming through, and there's uh, both aspects can be seen. So I, I wrote an introduction to that book for them, and then they said to me, "Would you like to do another book? We're doing a series about place." just pick any place you like. I think they imagine I'm picking Beckton Alp or, you know, something down the Thames Estuary, Isle of Grain, and I I don't know out of where particularly, but suddenly I did think of this uh, carboniferous limestone pavement area, very savage, very primal, where I'd grown up in South Wales. Mm-hmm. There was a stretch of coastland in the Gower Peninsula between Port Aynan and Rosilli that I'd walked three significant times in my life but I'd, I'd never got into this cave there's a cave there which I think of as a sort of cave of origin of everything because it's the oldest ritual human burial in the British Isles mm-hmm. it's like 36,000 years old and I knew of it being there but I'd never actually found it and I felt there was a story to be got out of uh, teasing out a history backstory for myself and also trying to find a way to get into this cave and see what would happen because in a sense I'd been travelling around it but also, weirdly, this idea of the arches underneath the railway become almost a cave system. Partly because Andrew Cotting is trying to get off the ground a film about caves because he's he did a trilogy of um, starting with Filthy Earth, a fictional trilogy which was mud, dirt, Dudley Foster with no teeth, absolutely the the soil. And then he did a second book, a film called Ival, which was about a kid who escapes up into the trees mm-hmm. and stays up in the trees. Now he wanted to go into the underground, so he's thinking about the underground. And I began to see those at railway arches as a cave system that ran right around London. And it was only logical, in a sense, to go to the ultimate cave, which was still there in my past, beyond it. So the two things, well, they don't obviously connect. There is a sort of symbolic connection between the two. We'll finish up back at that cave in a while but um, let's talk about well 
as you mentioned, you, you you grew up in Wales. You spent childhood holidays there. So let's talk about that. You know, sort of memories yeah. of those but, first holidays. Yeah, I spent a lot, a lot of very, very good holidays in a caravan that was on a farmer's field right on the edge of this bay, uh, Port Island Bay, but uh, above a little village called Horton. And it had this spectacular view of this landscape and a great territory to explore in all sorts of ways. And also then it became the place where I first went to stay just with mates or something like away from the family. So we're, we're totally independent. It can create all those sort of teenage adventures that would occur one of which becomes a, a walk to... Exp- we don't know. I had no idea where we were going. Mm. Just, I knew there was a cave after one headland, so you find that cave called Culverhole, which is walled up and mysterious, and you could crawl into it, and so there's all of that, and then it becomes a walk, and we meet these three girls, and we walk on to the end and just keep going and, and finish up in uh, Rossilli without really knowing, because there was no Welsh coastal path. There were, were no maps or anything. So this is just a... A mysterious adventure, sort of Enid Blyton adventure for teenagers. And then I, the next time I came back with the artist Brian Cantley, it was much more projected because I was, I knew the landscape and I wanted to make photographs and drawings of it and gather up material for a show we had at the Whitechapel Gallery called Albion Island Vortex. Mm-hmm. So this this was quite substantial and a lot of material came out of it. But again, um, we didn't actually find this particular cave the pavilion cave because there's no science to it and we're clambering around all these headlands but don't identify the point where that is and so there's a third walk when i'm 70 odd um, with my wife i go back but now there is a coast path and there's signs to everything but there's no signs to that and mm-hmm. again essentially there's too much to see and do and you get to the end of it oh we've missed it again so then i come back finally uh, one more time and succeed I mean, I mentioned, obviously, you, you know, you grew up in Wales and spent childhood holidays there. But in terms of writing about Wales, it's not, you know, it's obviously not your comfort zone. You no, have written no. about Wales before. Yes, one book. And got into a bit of trouble over it, really. Well, uh, it's a difficult book in a lot of ways. There was a, this book called Landor's Town. It wasn't, it wasn't sort of really about Wales. It was more about um, borders. It was the borderland of Wales, mm. and it was also um, borderlands spinning off into Somerset. So it was like that fissure, uh-huh. the Bristol Channel, both sides of it. On the English side, there was that a whole conspiracy business with Jeremy Thorpe, who was who was living down there and had clearly been involved in the attempted murder of a boyfriend, the shooting of a dog. Mm. All that stuff was floating about, and. And that tracked back into Wales. The, the, some of the hitmen hired connected up Wales, so there was a, a mad conspiracy story on that side. And on the Welsh side, there was a lot of things about trying to set up utopian communities from people from outside coming in, taking over Clantony Priory and mm. Abbey and, and the disasters that occurred when they tried to do that, right through from Walter Savage Landor through Eric Gill and David Jones to the hippie-ish communities and Allen Ginsberg coming there and taking LSD. So there's a, a terrific, a lot of material to work with, but in a sense, um, the people who had an expectation of me liking about writing about London didn't really engage with something that was happening out there that wasn't for them. And the people in Wales thought, oh, I mean, why is he writing about Wales, what's his legitimacy to, what kind of bandwagon is he trying to jump on here, so mm-hmm. there's a there's an awkwardness about it. And you upset people did you really get banned from the Hay Festival? Uh, no I didn't No, I, didn't. <laughs> I was rude about Hay because, it, because I thought the Hay Festival was pretty grisly and the whole business was fairly awful and I, I used to go there quite a lot as a, as a book dealer so I, I knew, knew the knew the personalities. I don't think it actually upset anybody because uh, they they used it in one of the quizzes in the future <laughs> Hay, Hay Festival. So I think that was just a bit of PR somewhere. Um, there's a, an artist, Carrie Richards, that's mm. um, that an influence on this book and indeed the title and the, his, the cover photo. That's his picture that, that sort of started me off on it. That uh, one there up on the wall? Yeah, on the wall there. There's a picture of, it's based on a Dylan Thomas poem uh, it's a lithograph do not go gentle into that good night and what it what it shows is a, a sprawled figure a naked figure of a writer um, who is Dylan Thomas and an owl is is a sort of escaping with all the material that he's written flying away with it and there's the moon a very stark black and white image and it's got this 
curve like a stage, which is quite reminiscent of Francis Bacon. And, and in fact, Kerry Richards was um, somebody who encouraged Francis Bacon early on, who knew him quite well. So when I was starting off, and this is one of the things in the book, I was, the first sort of paper or thesis or whatever I ever wrote was on Dylan Thomas, and I was researching that, and I saw this thing in an exhibition in Cardiff, and it was comparatively cheap, you know, it was, and I, I could afford it, I, I bought it, and it's stayed with me ever since. But I've never resolved in any way of writing, writing about it. And... Um, Another series of paintings Kerry Richards had done recall around the, the Black Apple of Gower, which were mythological paintings of a, a circle, or almost like a cave, embedded within the rock in which there are these male and female symbols, and in the rock are owls and fish and all kinds of other things. And I, I knew the work well, but I assumed this was just a generic, any, any old landscape with mm-hmm. this stuff implanted in it, like a mandala. Well, then I realised now that this is very specific, that these are actual places in, in the Gower from Kerry Richards having lived at Pennard, um, very close to Vernon Watkins, poet, who was a friend of Dylan mm-hmm. Thomas and who I had visited as a schoolboy in his uh, bungalow on the clifftops there. And so all of that, all of that stuff came flooding back and I, I wanted to understand how those two people made a powerful lifelong mythology of this small stretch of landscape and how I'd kind of blundered into it without knowing any of that but had still uh, seen there was something I needed to think about and read about including looking at these pictures for many years. I'm Andrew Muller. Go and read some great new journalism and explore the interview archive at littleatoms.com. Is there, a, for you, an essential difference in writing about landscape in this sort of way to writing about like a place like Hackney, where there yeah. are multiple layers of? It's very different. You know, I think the thing what I sense I got here was that if I'm writing about Hackney or London, mm-hmm. where I've, where I've been writing about it since the early 1970s, I've I've laid down a lot of markers and and memory deposits like you would do on a sat nav or something. You can put waste. Yeah. I've I've got those all over the all over London. Any any way I walk out of here, I've got things that seem because I know them to confirm my own identity. Mm-hmm. So here I am, legitimately a writer of the city because yeah. I've written about this or I've talked to so and so here. I've done this. Then you're in this stark rocky landscape. There's none of that, and and then I realise that the significance of the figure, the human figure in it, is negligible, and it's not a question of me recovering any sense of mm-hmm. myself from it. It's much more to do with dissolving a sense of self and, and acknowledging the potency of this extraordinary place. So it's essentially, it becomes about place. It's the exact opposite yeah. of London. I could never make a place of London. It's, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a zillion lives, all, uh, thousands of writers. It's all of these echoes and words, any step you take. Mm-hmm. Out there, it's, it's paired right down. There's next to nothing there. And these couple of people who who worked with it have, have equally come to this point. It's not a, about them, and it's not about the things they got from it. It's about making a kind of treaty whereby they can dissolve and just leave these traces that someone else can use to get them into the landscape rather than to get them into the people. And this imprint is, I mean, it seems to be firmly placing itself in this thing, the new nature right? Yes, it's, it looks like that, but I mean, this is kind of pushing it a bit sure um it, it, well there is it does obviously little tar obviously do uh, fit with with a lot of the robert mcfarlane mm-hmm. kind of new nature writing um and writing about places like silbury hill but uh, the great advantage of working with someone like that is that they they give so much attention to the look and feel of the object of the book and allow you to work with images uh, and color and texture in ways that don't happen when you work with a big mainstream publisher. I mean, they, you know, they say you can't have colour; it's too expensive. We can't mm-hmm. do it. Well, yeah, well, you know, they they've done it, and they they keep the book to a relatively modest price, and it proves that you can do it. So the feel was for me much more like the times when I had my own small press, and I, mm-hmm. you know, if I wanted to put this picture here, I'd put this picture here, and you could, you could, you you have that extra level of freedom which I think probably affects the way it's written to some extent. It's kind of more free-flowing form. Well, I, I raised the new nature thing, because I, mean, I don't know if you, if you saw it a few weeks ago, Mark Cocker had a, had a thing in the, uh, in the New Statesman, which was, 
I mean, basically moaning a bit about the uh, the new nature writing. And, well, it's become an industry. Yeah, and, yeah, really and nice. and this idea that it's you know it, it, it's more rather than people that know the countryside, yes, it's, it's it's city people coming and being awed by the countryside. Well, I think there's a, there's a, there's, a, there's also a format in it. A mm-hmm. lot of it is is about damaged people or troubled people or yeah. people um, you know, city break, people break down city people. Not necessarily not all city <laughs> people, but they're they're people who've got some kind of trauma that some is healed by by undertaking yeah. a journey, yeah. a quest, a, a, yeah. an engagement with nature. Yeah, you, you clearly yeah, described in Helen McDonald's book that wonderful. Well, there's book, various, yeah, various. Yeah, yeah, there's all that. kinds. You know, yeah. every one of them. I mean, Richard Maybe's books are yeah. about having a sort of mental crisis and sure. you know coming through. It's and it's and you know, there's loads of people um, have lost a partner. There's a mourning book. Uh, Whatever, or they themselves have got some terminal illness, and there's all it's a superimposition in which you know this this thing I'm saying about you know the, the person's own identity is taken out into this to say, can we go somewhere beyond it? Can we make something else of ourselves? And my sense was literally, I I, I want to go back to memory strands, but I want to I want to dissolve it, and I want to also to slightly pay my due to a place that I I haven't haven't done justice to, you know, that meant a lot to me. Ultimately, how does memory actually more than you know your memory of those childhood holidays, and also the later but still a while ago walks that you did that you talk about in this book? How do all of those sort of play into the the writer who wrote this book? Did that walk the last time? If you see what I mean. Well, I think I think it it starts the book starts with, with um, the arrival at the beginning of the project, and I, I, the first thing I had to do was sort of get into the sea and it was a really unexpected because the, the, I go in the sea down in Hastings or Andrew Cotting it's quite a lot and it's a, it's a kind of it's often full of sediment or it's, it's, it's almost you can smell the fish and chips it's, and it's kind of bracing and this, this sea was felt peculiar and it felt that um, it, it had a quality of dissolving time to some extent that being out there um, all the bits that didn't fit together when I was when I was on the shore I mean I, I couldn't think where exactly this caravan had been or how we'd got mm-hmm. on it, suddenly it all just whoosh it all it all fitted and it was also like um, one swim became all swims and then layers of uh, images sort of floated to the surface and strangely enough after, shortly after this this uh, friend of mine I hadn't seen in God knows how many years out of the blue sends a who had been on one of the walks with you. Yeah, you know, the first walk when yeah. he used to stay in this caravan sends this childhood photograph of herself that I don't recognise at all. But yet, you know, here we are. I know that's my next door neighbour. You know, I mean, things come back that you you had no idea of. And I think the sea was that process that somehow churned up this kind of imagery. So we're pretty much out of time, but I wanted to get back to that cave. And particularly you talk about, one of the characters you talk about in this book is a fantastic man, paleontologist oh, Richard Buckland. Buckland. Yeah, yeah. Uh, William Buckland. Yeah. Um, William well, the whole Buckland. episode of the cave was was so bizarre. In that, um, this you know, I tried to get to it, and it's it come to a dead end. I'm crawling around the cliff, and then suddenly this woman appears out of nowhere, like a kind of white witch, and she says, "I'm going to the cave. Follow the cave. Follow her down a chasm with rocky pools, and get it." So finally, after all these years, I'm in the cave, and it happens that she knows a lot about it, and mm-hmm. she's married to Roland Hutton, who writes about pagan Britain, or she's connected to, it. and she invokes the presence of this person, William Buckland, who was an Oxford academic, who in 1820s goes is summoned down there. He doesn't find it, but he's called there by local people who found it, and they they ransack this thing and they they pull out these bones, and you you see it as a major raid on it. And it becomes his story, and he carries it all away, and it's in Oxford, mm-hmm. in in the University Museum. Whereas I thought the bones were in Swansea. There is there are a collection in Swansea, but those are replicas. They're mm-hmm. fakes. They they look dusty. They look real. And then the Buckland himself, of course, is completely insane. I mean, he's uh, he starts to eat his way through the evolutionary ladder. He eats rhinoceroses, horses, lizards, flies, bees, the lot. It just does it. And finally, at Newnham House outside Oxford, when they show him this relic, uh, the heart supposedly of Louis the Fourteenth, the great treasure of the house, in a silver casket, he opens it up and he gobs it down and swallows it like an oyster. <laughs> I thought this is amazing. This is just so ridiculous and absurd, but it's it's perfect metaphor for the for the kind of outsider, including myself, who comes into these spaces 
and insists on their version of the story. And I thought that was very significant. One final question then. So what next? Is it is it back to the city? Well, I've got a, I, I would like to work on, an, on a London book, not a sequel to any of these, but a, a one that deals with this moment, because I think we're in this, this very interesting limbo between mm. cities. I, I mean, I think it w- it's the last of a certain kind of London, and the new has not emerged or defined itself exactly yet. And while that process is happening, I think there's something quite interesting to be described, and I'd like to, to make it a kind of last book in this long series of books I've been doing to find out what the city is and also to find out what I am. I've been talking to Ian Sinclair. We've been talking about his recent books, London Overground, A Day's Walk Around the Ginger Lion, which is out now from Hamish Hamilton, and Black Apples of Gower, which is out now from Little Toller. Ian, thank you very much for taking the time to tell me about the two of them. Thanks again. Come back in five years. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.